Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on May 2nd, Lord's Day Service. The words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence? which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would transform us into the image of Christ. We ask that your word would influence us to be pure to be cheerful, and to be faithful. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blaise Pascal said that men never do evil so completely as when they do it from religious conviction. In this passage today, Jesus makes a complicated argument against the Pharisees' tendency to oppress people with extra rules. And so this morning, we'll spend some time unpacking Jesus' complicated argument. And as we do, I encourage you to lock in. The modern man's not accustomed to complicated things or complicated arguments. And so we might need to lock in to follow the logic of Jesus and learn the lesson he intends to teach. And this is a passage especially for those people who live in a world of rules. So this includes parents and children. This includes teachers and students. This includes church leaders and church members. This includes bosses and employees, magistrates and citizens. Not all rules are good. And not all rules are bad. And so as we commit ourselves to following the logic of Jesus' argument this morning, I hope all of you that live in a world of rules will seek to make mature application of Jesus' argument to your own situation, potentially as a rule maker, or maybe as one who's in a position as a follower of rules. And so we have much to learn from the Pharisees' overzealous rulemaking, and we have much to learn from Jesus' critique of their overzealous rulemaking. And so as we look at this text here, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, this is the fourth of five conflict stories between Jesus and the Pharisees. And in this passage, the Pharisees pursue Jesus and his disciples through a grain field on a Sabbath afternoon. Their opposition is that the disciples of Jesus, who are hungry, pick grain on the Sabbath. And in so doing, the disciples break the complicated series of Sabbath rules many of which were invented by the Pharisees. And so then in this passage, Jesus quotes an Old Testament example which 
confounds the Pharisees. He quotes or explains this story where the great king David had committed a far greater breach of Sabbath laws when he was in need, and he was not blamed for it. And when you read that story in 1 Samuel 21, on the surface it seems like David is violating a rule. But Jesus explains he really isn't violating the rule because in God's economy, in God's laws, there are gracious exceptions. And so what's Jesus' point? As he interacts with the Pharisees, as he tells this Old Testament story about David, well, his big point is that the Pharisees taught that humans were created in order to keep the Sabbath. And he steps in to correct that and to show how absurd that is. Jesus steps in to show that the Sabbath is God's loving and gracious provision for rest and worship. And, by the way, since this conflict itself occurs on the Sabbath, and in this conflict we have the Pharisees zealously pursuing the disciples of Jesus through a grain field like a linebacker pursues a running back, one is left wondering why such scrupulous Pharisees are not at home studying the Torah. And this reveals that the Pharisees are much more interested in pronouncing laws than actually keeping them. And so in all this story, what we see is the Pharisees just don't get it. The Pharisees just misunderstand. Where do the Pharisees go wrong? Well, they go wrong in two ways, and this will be the, the, the emphasis this morning. They misunderstand and they go wrong first because their view of God's law misrepresents who God really is. And second, they go wrong because their view of Jesus misrepresents who Jesus really is. Is. So let's take those two emphases one at a time. First, let's investigate how the Pharisees go wrong in that their view of God's law misrepresents who God really is. Now this dispute is about God's design for the Sabbath. And when you look at verse 27, this is towards the end of the story where Jesus is really starting to make application to the David story. In verse 27, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so this is talking about how the Sabbath was made. Well, when was the Sabbath made? Well, the Sabbath was made at creation. And so this statement, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, Jesus is taking us back to creation. He's taking us back to the origin of the Sabbath. And he explains that human beings were not created to observe the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath was created for humans' benefit. And so the Sabbath is from God, and it's about the needs of man. The Sabbath is God's blessing to man. But the Pharisees came along, and in a long line of rabbinical tradition, and they constructed extra Sabbath rules that oppress the people. And Jesus clarifies that the Sabbath is about mercy, not oppression. Jesus clarifies that human needs take precedence over ceremonial rules. And so, in all of this, the Pharisees had distorted the Sabbath. They'd given these extra rules that are not found in the Old Testament, and in so doing, they had distorted the Sabbath. 
So how specifically had the Pharisees distorted the Sabbath? Well, when you look at the Sabbath, beginning in Genesis chapter 2, and then as it's worked out in the Old Testament law, the Sabbath is this distinctive element of Judaism. And the Jewish rabbis had come along and had legislated extensive rules for the Sabbath that went far beyond what God actually says in Scripture. And these rules are found in a document called the Mishnah, which was a Jewish tract of traditions and rules that was just passed down through Judaism. And the Pharisees were the, the inheritors of these rules, and they, of course, enforced them. And this tract listed 39 rules. It listed 39 kinds of work that were prohibited on the Sabbath. And one-third of their rules involved reaping, which is the very activity that the disciples are doing on this Sabbath afternoon. But you still, you might look at that and hear that history and think, but still, how exactly does that distort the Sabbath? How are the Pharisees distorting the Sabbath? I mean, doesn't the fourth commandment forbid work on the Sabbath? And it seems like the Pharisees just want to help people obey God and not work on the Sabbath. So what's the big deal? Aren't these extra rules just helping people obey God and obey the Sabbath commands? And the answer to that is that yeah, the fourth commandment does forbid work on the Sabbath. And the exact wording in Exodus chapter 20, verse 10 is, On it you shall not do any work. And then Exodus chapter 34, verse 21 adds, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. The Pharisees' distortion comes with the 39 extra rules that they gave the people. These rules were designed to keep people from breaking the Sabbath. And so in effect, they put a fence around the law. So imagine the law said, you can't touch this tree. Well, these pharisaical rules then put a fence 100 yards all the way around the tree, and then they said, if you touch the fence, it's as if you touch the tree. And still, some of you might think, well, what's wrong with that? God said, don't touch the tree. Aren't we just doing our due diligence to make sure we don't touch the tree? Shouldn't we take care to obey God's law? Shouldn't we be overly cautious? And this is where Jesus' story about David really helps clarify. So look at it again. This is verse 24 through 26. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read about what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And so Jesus tells them this story about David. This is his response to their charge that the Pharisees are breaking the Sabbath by harvesting grain. And this is a story from 1 Samuel 21. I mentioned that earlier. And in this story, maybe you remember it, it's a pretty well-known story. David is on the run. Saul is pursuing him. And in 1 Samuel 21-2, David starts out by telling a lie. Then in verse 3, David is hungry and he goes in and asks the priest for some bread. And then in verse 4, the priest tells him that he has no common bread, but he does have holy bread. 
And then verse 4 going into verse 5, the priest confirms that David, even though he's not a priest, is clean enough, given the situation, to eat the holy bread. And then in verse 6, the priest gives David the holy bread, and David eats it, even though he's not a priest. This is the story Jesus is reminding the Pharisees of. David eats that which according to the law, which according to the letter of the law, should only have been eaten by the priest. And so Jesus tells this story, and then the question that was probably floating then is, well, is David not breaking the law? And so go back to Mark chapter 2, and notice what Jesus says about this story. He tells the story from 1 Samuel 21, and then in verse 26, he says, David ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. So it seems, again, David is breaking the law. And on the surface, Jesus is almost making the point that, yes, on the surface, David did what was unlawful. On the surface, it seemed like David was violating the law. But then as you get to verse 27, Jesus then says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so... Yes, on the surface, David was violating the law. But he wasn't really violating the law because there are gracious exceptions. David and his men are not priests, but they were justified in eating the priestly bread because they were famished, because they were hungry, because they had a need. And God, who is gracious and merciful, sees that need and allows David to eat the holy bread. And so when you look at this story, and you look at the Pharisees' application of Pharisaical law as it relates to the Sabbath, and then you see Jesus' disciples harvesting grain, and then Jesus telling this story, on one level, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees misunderstand the law because they misunderstand that emergencies can affect the application of the law. Since the Sabbath is for man, the Pharisaical restrictions prevent nourishment to starving people. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not right. The Sabbath rules must yield to human need. But there's actually a much bigger point, a much more foundational point than this. Because it's not that the Pharisees merely misunderstand the law and just, you know, they didn't apply it right. That's not what's going on here. The point is that they misunderstand God. When you misunderstand the law of God, you misunderstand God. So think about what the law is. What is the law? Well, the law of God is nothing more than the earthly manifestation of the will of God. The, the law of God, as recorded in the Old Testament, is the earthly presentation of what God's holiness looks like. And so then, when you must understand the law, you misunderstand God. Which then means, if you say the law is less gracious than it really is, then what are you saying about God? If you say the law is less gracious than it is, and that the law of God and the rules of God won't meet the needs of a hungry person, you then are saying that God is less gracious than He is. And so 
for you who are in a rule-making position, which is many of you, many of you are in a rule-making position, either as parents, as bosses, as magistrates, here's what you need to realize. That as a Christian, you are a representative for our Lord. And so if you're a professing Christian and you're a parent, your kids see you as mediating God to them. You are representing the Lord to them. If you're a boss and you're a Christian and they know that, then they're going to correlate that the things you do are representing your Lord. If you're a magistrate and you're a professing Christian, the people are going to know that. And they're going to look at you and they're going to think the things you do are representing God. And so that means if you are in a rulemaking position and you are a Christian and you are representing the Lord, if your rules are less gracious than God is, then you are representing to those people that God is less gracious than He is. If your rules are less true than God is, those of you who work in corporations understand false rules. They're everywhere. Well, if your rules are less true than God is, then you are representing that God is less true than He is. If your rules are less just than God is, then you are representing that God is less just than He is. And so the first problem the Pharisees have, the first thing they misunderstand is that their view of God's law misrepresents who God really is. The second thing we need to see in this story is that the Pharisees' view of Jesus misrepresents who Jesus really is. And so go to the last verse, verse 28. Jesus concludes and he says, The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now the Son of Man is how Jesus refers to himself. And so Jesus just said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. The proposition presented in verse 28 is that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord of the Sabbath. Now let's think about this. Earlier we talked about the Sabbath and who made it, who instituted the Sabbath. Well, God did at creation. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, it says there that God blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So God made the Sabbath. So we have God the Father, He makes the Sabbath, and then Jesus says here in Mark chapter 2, verse 28, that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And so what is Jesus really saying? The only person who is over the Sabbath is God. Jesus is over the Sabbath, therefore Jesus is God. The only person who can truly determine the rules about the Sabbath is God. Listen to it again, verse 28. Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so Jesus is announcing that He is God. And He is announcing that He is the one who governs the Sabbath. He is the chief priest. He is the one greater than the temple. And if you zoom out and look at the broader context of this stage of Mark, looking at Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2, we see that Jesus' authority is progressively being revealed to the reader. Jesus has authority in His teaching. Then we're shown that Jesus has authority over spiritual forces. Then we're shown that Jesus has authority over physical illness. Then Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And now, Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees 
accused Jesus' disciples of breaking a Sabbath rule. And Jesus' response is about His own nature and about His own authority over the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees have a problem with Jesus. The problem is Jesus is Lord. And this is much the point of the conflict on the ground between Jesus and the Pharisees as they look one another in the eye. This is what this is really about. Who's Lord here? The Pharisees are asserting, well, we're, we're, we're in charge here. We'll make the rules here. And Jesus is stepping in and saying, no, you won't. I'm in charge here. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And you see that level of the conflict work itself out as you think through what's actually going on here. Because notice, this is really a debate about interpretations. And so Jesus here is rejecting the Pharisaical interpretation of the law. The Pharisees try to throw a book of Sabbath rules at Jesus as representing their interpretation of the Old Testament. And Jesus responds by telling them the David story, and in so doing, he basically puts them in an Old Testament headlock. And what he proves is that the rigidity of the Pharisees' interpretation of the law is not in accord with Scripture itself. Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees' approach to the Old Testament is wrong. And the Pharisees' approach to the Old Testament cannot explain this story involving David. And so Jesus has unique authority to interpret the Scriptures. And that should have tremendous meaning for us today, because as Christians, every day we're interpreting the Scriptures, I would hope. And so what does this mean? Well, it does not mean that we should automatically reject historical interpretations. I can imagine someone saying, well, here's, here's the hermeneutic that we deduce from this passage. Jesus comes along and he rejects a multi-hundred-year interpretation of the Old Testament. Therefore, we too ought to be really suspicious of historical theology and historical interpretations of the text. Well, that's not the point of this interaction. What we should derive from this is that all of our interpretations of Scripture must flow through Jesus and His divinely inspired apostles. And it also points out something that's not popular in the 21st century, and that is that some interpretations of texts are wrong, and some are right. It is within the realm of possibility for someone to hold the Bible in their hands, to have a lot of knowledge, and to have a wrong interpretation. Not all interpretations are right. And notice how Jesus corrects an improper interpretation. What does he do? Does he get real emotional and make an emotional appeal? And try to convince them with his emotion? No. He goes to the text itself and reasons from it. And so we're in a state in the Christian church today where there's a lot of people making a lot of claims about what Christianity is or isn't. How do we deal with that on the ground in daily conversation? Well, I would encourage you to follow the pattern of Jesus and take it back to the text. Oh, you want to talk about theology? Great. Let's do that. Let's get out our Bible. And let's look at the words on the page. And let's think about what those words mean. And pray that the Spirit gives us wisdom. And so what we see in this passage is that the Pharisees misunderstand. And their view of God's law misrepresents who God is. And their view of Jesus misrepresents who Jesus is really is. And so, with that, let's close 
by making three implications. Let's consider three closing implications of this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Implication number one. God's grace trumps austerity. God's grace trumps austerity. Austerity just means being overly stern, harsh. God's grace trumps that. You see, the Sabbath is about God's kindness, and the Pharisees made it about cruelness. And yeah, religious people do that sometimes. The Pharisees used the Bible to look for the shortcomings of others. The Pharisees used the Bible to make people conform to their rules and then to harshly condemn them when they did not conform. We all have to realize that Christians have a reputation of doing this sort of thing. We all have to realize that there is something within all of us that wants to do this sometimes. And we have to be on guard against it. We all know there's a little Pharisee living inside of all of us. And so, let's just take note that we do the same thing when we pick our favorite Bible translation and say, if you aren't using this one, you're not reading the Bible. We do the same thing when we're at home and we confuse our house rules, pick up your shoes, with God's rules. We do the same thing when we punish our kids because they embarrass us rather than when they actually dishonor us or dishonor the Lord. We do the same thing when we draw an itty-bitty, teeny-tiny circle around our Christian preferences and then say anyone outside the circle probably isn't even a Christian. We do the same thing when we go from church to the restaurant and leave a stingy tip because they gave us bad service. We do the same thing when we withhold forgiveness from someone who wrongs us. We do the same thing when we emphasize the outward while ignoring the inward. And so we need to be reminded from a story like this that God's grace trumps austerity. Second, we need to be reminded that God's grace trumps cold smugness. God's grace trumps cold smugness. Again, there's something within all of us that fixates on the shortcomings of others. And God's grace ought to defeat that tendency in our lives. And so we need to come out of a story like this and beware of always looking for the shortcomings of others. Beware of cold smugness towards others. And by smugness, I just mean assuming you're always superior, assuming you're never wrong and everyone else is an idiot. Beware of that. Beware of outer forms without true mercy. The bitter Pharisees reveal the tendency within some religious folks to fixate on the marginal, to fixate on those things that are on the far outer edge of importance and then pretend as if they're in the center. This is a tendency we have to be aware of, the tendency of smugness. And this tendency of fixating on the marginal is the thing that brings about a mercenary and harsh spirit towards others. This is the tendency that brings about the fondness for negatives and a judgmental view towards others who have a different opinion. 
the third and final implication we need to consider is that God's grace, excuse me, God's Sabbath grace renews man. God's Sabbath grace renews man. Christians worship on the first day of the week rather than the seventh because Christ was raised on Sunday and not on Saturday. And so in the New Testament, we see Christians worshiping on the first day of the week as a sort of updated Sabbath, and they call it the Lord's Day. And so we do the same. And we see in this passage that the Pharisees' rigorous Sabbath rules distorted the meaning of the Sabbath. Well, could it be that today Christians' neglect of the Sabbath also distorts God's purpose for the Lord's Day? I mean, if we're honest... Christians today treat Sunday like any other day. Only they go to church in the morning. Maybe. Why is this? Why has this happened in the last hundred years? Just historically, this is a very new development. Why is this? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and it's something that maybe you can discuss at home with your family. This would be a good dinnertime conversation. But one reason is the combination of frantic schedules with the desire for control. We keep, we keep this anxious grip on the world and then redefine righteousness as busyness. And so there's just not time to rest and worship on the Lord's day. And in that mindset, we forget that God's Sabbath grace is designed to renew us. And the pattern, as we read in Exodus 34, verse 21, is work six and rest one. That's God's design. And it's God's grace to build into our routines a time to rejoice, a time to refocus, and a time to give gratitude. All this is God's grace that renews His covenant with us, and God does no better than your planner. And sometimes it is good. According to the wisdom of God, we can't help but conclude, sometimes it must be good to just stop. Sometimes it must be good in God's wisdom to rest and to remember that God will provide. Sometimes it's good to stop and rest and remember that God is the giver of life, to stop and remember that humility is a good thing and that there are limits to being human. The Sabbath was made for people. And so we must stop and rest and worship the Lord on the Lord's day. And when we do, we remember that there is nothing we have that can move God to show us mercy. That there is nothing we can do to convince God to be gracious to us. When we stop and rest and worship the Lord on the Lord's day, we remember that all we have in and of ourselves only earns God's just judgment. And so we stop and we remember the gospel, and we remember what Christ has done, and we say to the Lord, and this is our closing prayer, let's bow your heads together with me. We stop, and this is what we say to the Lord. We say, Lord, I am the unworthiest of any whosoever sought You. And so the riches of Your grace appear even greater by You saving me through the body and blood of Jesus. Heavenly Father, may You build into our hearts the desire to stop and rest and worship and remember that we cannot earn Your mercy, that there's nothing we can do 
that can convince you to be gracious to us. Help us to stop and rest in worship and confess that we are sinners and we have earned your judgment, but then to worship you. Because through the body and blood of Christ, you have saved us and made us your children. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. <laughs>